This is the Inclusion Solution Live, the Winters Groups podcast for all things diversity, equity, and inclusion. I am your host, Brittany J. Harris, Vice President of Learning and Innovation, and I am excited to leverage this medium as yet another opportunity to facilitate dialogue, shift perspectives, and empower action in service of equity, justice, and inclusion. This season, we are demystifying internalized oppression. So I'm super excited, Damra, to have you on this episode. I'm sure our listeners are just as excited. And so if you wouldn't mind, Damra, just sharing uh, a little bit more about yourself, sort of those aspects of identity um, that influence who you are. Before you do that, though, I'll just share, folks. Um, Thamara is on our learning and innovation team. And more formally, she supports us in developing education experiences for our, um, for our clients. And so I actually have the pleasure of working with Thamara on our team and perhaps some of our clients have as well. Dharma, I'll turn it over to you to just share a little bit more informally about yourself and what you're bringing to today's conversation. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Brittany. I'm so excited to share with you all kind of my thoughts on um, this topic and why I feel like it's so important and not really talked about as much, especially in the diversity and inclusion space. Um, so as Brittany said, my name is Thamra. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Um, and I identify as South Asian American. I'm a child of two immigrants who came here in the 80s from India. Um, and just growing up here as a first generation um, millennial in this country, I'm seeing so many different changes in not only, only the socio-political environment, but also just um, with how my family, um, my peers, my communities have, you know, adjusted to life in America mm-hmm. has been really interesting. And um, I feel like being an Asian American um, in this space puts me in this unique perspective where, um, as I'm going to talk about with the model minority myth, um, we're often seen highly in society, but also there are so many very specific and um very important um, systemic oppression for this community that we need to consider. Um, So yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this with you all um, and excited to kind of see what we can unpack. Very, very cool. And so, so Damra, um, I'll be honest. Well, you know what, maybe no shade to the other writers, right? (laughs) No shade to the other writers because all of them were, were great. All of them were wonderful in their own right. Um, I really, really, really enjoyed your posts, in part because I, I didn't know the, the approach that you were going to take. I didn't know the approach or even like the aspect of identity that you were going to be focused on. And so I'd be really, really interested in just um, understanding like how you or why you even chose to write about this aspect of your identity. Um, and, you know, maybe even for the folks, it might be helpful for you to define um, model minority or what the model minority myth and why this experience was particularly salient for you 
and demystifying um, internalized oppression. Awesome. Yeah. So when I first was like, oh, I need to write about, you know, internalized oppression. This is the first thing I thought of. It was very just, oh, of course, I'm going to write about this because it's something I think about almost every day. Um, but I really had a term for it until I started doing more social justice work in um, college and in graduate school. But the, it's essentially the term model minority is a term that has been used for since the civil rights era um, to describe how uh, the Asian American population in America is especially exceptionally high achieving, hardworking, seen mm-hmm. as very um, compliant with the standards of the American dream, compliant with the values of the country, um, and are really respected, educated, um, often statistically making more money than even um, white people statistically um, being, you know, CEOs, things like that. Um, And it's something that I think as an immigrant, uh, a child of immigrants, I was more aware of than my parents themselves. I think Mm. they, I think I saw their internalization of it and then started questioning, oh, you know, like, are they really being respectful towards you and your identity? Um, I know we talk a lot about assimilation versus exclusion versus inclusion. And I really think of the model minority, um, and now that it's considered with a lot of research a myth, um, as a way of, you know, assimilating. I think all immigrants, you know, want to feel included, come to this country for a reason, for a better life, um, for better opportunities to, you know, be upwardly mobile. And I think this myth has kind of been used as a facade to be like, hey, um, we are being respectful of you and we appreciate you but in reality it's really harmful especially to other people of color you know what and so I was actually gonna ask you to um just talk a little bit more why this is even a myth right because on its surface like model minority sounds you know really positive even in your post you talk about how you know being a role model is something that we grow up to believe is like a good thing. Um, But then you take a critical approach to really emphasizing that this is a myth. And I think in your title, you even said, hey, it's not even a compliment. And so could you just share a little bit more Mm -hmm. about, you know, why it is a myth and from your perspective and based on your experiences, why this isn't a compliment and in um, uh, more ways, uh, a form of internalized oppression. Right. So, The model minority myth is a myth because, you know, for me growing up, I felt like, you know, all my teachers loved me. I felt very supported in school, in all the environments I was in. And I personally, as a child, at least, didn't feel any at least direct forms of oppression or racism Mm. or sexism even. Um, And ideally, that sounds great. You know, if we had a race, racism free, sexism free world. Um, It sounds great, but in reality, it is a myth because um, as I've gotten older, I've noticed how much, you know, uh, microaggressions, um, biases, uh, hate crimes that are out there for people who are Asian American, Um, even though Asian Americans might be going through these educational systems, Mm. um, that doesn't mean that they are, you know, um, progressing in their careers as much as white people do. 
Um, and this is really important, especially when you're thinking of upward mobility, who are our leaders? Uh, representations of Asian Americans are also this very stereotypical idea of, you know, smart, nerdy, good at math, things like that, um, or often seen as jokes, similar to, mm -hmm. you know, other uh, people of color. And when I started digging deeper, I was like, you know, this must have come through some reason, you know, it sounds at one point, my parents immigrated here, and I knew it was because my dad was going to go to graduate school. And so he got a visa to go to graduate school. And looking just looking deeper into that, most of my uh, Asian American peers as parents who immigrated here also came here in terms of a reason for higher education, um, refugees, things like that. So the term uh, was actually coined by white Americans during mm -hmm. the 1960s civil rights era. So uh, first before the civil rights era was the Chinese Exclusion Act. So really the Chinese Exclusion Act is exactly what it is. It's basically making sure that only 105 Chinese people um, could immigrate each year. And then it was repealed um, not because of an act of inclusion, but really to mitigate this relationship with Asian countries um, so they could be allies in the war against Japan. Mm -hmm. um, so it was really used as a political tool. It's like, oh, we'll welcome you because, you know, we want to be cordial with you in this war that benefits us. Not you, but us, um, us as white Americans. Um, and then in the 1950s and 60s, as the civil rights movements um, were happening, uh, Asian Americans were starting to increase in this country because of the repeal of the Chinese Inclusion Act and were seen as rule followers, people who were mm. contributing to society, not complaining, not questioning um, their treatment. And so essentially by people who are against the civil rights movement, the argument was, you know, Asian Americans are also minorities in this country. They're not complaining. They think that their life is fine. Why do we need to um, change mm. things for African Americans. Um, why should, why do we need um, like specific rules, like specific changes and to consider African American culture as important? Why aren't Asian Americans being activists and doing these riots? They're not being violent. Um, they're not seen as violent. And why the real, the real like thing behind it, the real root behind this model minority myth was kind of an excuse for people not to take action for equal rights for people mm -hmm. of color, for black people specifically. Um, so that was something that was really fascinating to me because I thought it was something that my generation, the model minority myth had come up with just because um, for my generation of South Asians, Asian Americans, being high achieving and the pressure in academics is really high. So I thought, oh, maybe this is something someone came up with, you know, in the 2000s, in the early 90s. Uh, but actually, it was something that was used as a tool of oppression against other people of color, which puts mm -hmm. um, the internalization in an interesting spot where if I internalize this um, idea, then I am still, you know, perpetuating oppression towards other people of color and myself. Um, not being an activist for um, Asian American issues, not being an activist for other people of colors. And it really, um, I think, it opened me to this world of what does it mean to really be an ally? What does it mean to, um, you know, harness my identity and the um, implications of that for good?
I, I, so this was some really, really, really good historical context. And I think it really just the, just having you unpack and just talk a little bit more about where the model minority, like even the model minority thing like comes from, right? Just hearing you state that really affirms what we often say in our work and especially in, 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 in sessions that, you know what, systems don't just come out of nowhere. Like, you know, it's not just kind of like mm -hmm. ideals, norms here, there, you know, they're now here and they oppress like people, like people, everyday people, people in power, create systems, create messages, you know, perpetuate norms that oppress. And so what it sounded like and what I gathered from that is this whole notion of, you know what, model minority as a label, as a term, uh, was just another tactic employed to like perpetuate oppression, specifically, um, you know, anti-Blackness. And I think that's important to call out because a lot of times I think it can be difficult to understand how, even as members of a subordinated group, right, people of color, we mm -hmm. can, you know, perpetuate exclusion, we can perpetuate uh, uh, oppression and cause harm. And so that's kind of, you know, what my next question for you is going to be, how does, you know, something that is seemingly you know, or was a positive stereotype cause harm um, historically, but even in the context of, you know, our current climate, right? Why mm -hmm. is this even important for us as practitioners and change agents to call it out? Mm -hmm. uh, I definitely think in the context of now, um, you know, kind of dismantling the my model minority myth is so important because, um, as we're seeing, you know, more like a rise of activism, a rise of activism by young people, a rise of activism from people, um, not just people of color, but people who are passionate about all issues. It's really important, I think, as Asian Americans who have historically, you know, been more silent, especially in the U.S. activism space, to start standing up for um, other people of color, for example, um, Black, Lives Lighter, Black Lives Matter movements. I know there are a lot of Asian American coalitions out there who did a lot of partnerships with that, which is awesome. And same with DACA, Dreamers, um, and immigrants um, from you know Mexico and all of the immigration controversy that is out there today. I think it's really important that we understand, you know, what the power of the Asian American you know, identity is and how we can utilize our power as Asian Americans, as well as how other people of color can also understand that this was kind of, this was a tool of oppression for this community that often isn't seen as being oppressed, especially mm -hmm. in America. Um, so I really think it is a kind of mutualistic uh, understanding and just recognizing that, you know, we weren't, we didn't come to this country to oppress people, but rather, you know, due to the systems that um, lie, uh, that's what was happened. That's how um, we've internalized it. And a lot of it also comes from, I think, even stepping a step farther into this would be um, colonization, especially in South Asian countries. Um, this idea that white is best and actual colorism and anti-blackness being something that was also becoming common in the Eastern world um, and something that, you know, in America, 
Um, there's a lot of anti-blackness I've seen within the Asian community because of what people see um, as uh, African-American on TV. There's just such little exposure. And I think media has perpetuated this model minority myth more. Um, and that's really important to understand because I've seen a lot of better representation in the last few years of Asian Americans on screen, um, even when stories are talked about on the news. But um, we still have a long ways to go to make sure that both uh, people of color understand as well as Asian Americans understand our role um, in, you know, uh, greater social justice. And I'm glad you, when you talk about, um, when you talk about your role, right, and role implies, you know, action, mm-hmm. roles imply, you know, shifts in behavior, doing something, whether it's in a classroom, whether it's at home. Um, and so what do you, so, so as someone who um, identifies who is Asian American, someone who obviously experiences, you know, oppression and marginalization, but then also benefits and experience privilege in some ways, especially in this context, what do you see as your role? Like, what do you offer to someone who's kind of just like, I mean, you know, I didn't do this, right? Like, I'm just kind of Mm -hmm. this sort of well-intentioned perspective of I'm really just trying to succeed, right? Mm -hmm. I'm really just trying to, you know, do the best that I can um, offer to, to someone perhaps with similar identities as your own as sort of what their role is in this work, what Mm -hmm. their role is as someone experiencing oppression, but hey, also someone who, you know, can be an ally and who can act in service of justice and equity. Right. I think that's a really great question. I think there's so much that um, people like me can do. Um, First, just thinking about um, self-understanding to the point of, you know, what are some things that you do? Just thinking about what are things in your life that are perpetuating this model minority mess? What, how are we potentially, you know, um, covering up hate, racism, systemic oppression, things that we might experience um, and justifying it as okay. Mm. I think that's often really seen um, in this community, uh, especially since, you know, we are, we don't want to be seen as, um, you know, against people. I think it's a lot of fear. There's a fear of, you know, not being accepted when you speak out against something that's solely something about your identity. And I think that's something that is new still for the Asian community, especially in this country. Um, And I think a lot of times I've seen uh, for people in my communities, what assumptions are we making about our peers and mm-hmm. what do we see and what standards are we holding ourselves to, especially in terms of achievement, um, friendship, allyship. I think that's really important. And thinking about, you know, what kind of ally are we, especially to other people of color? Often I see Asian American, um, my experience of being in Asian American communities, there's not as much, I think the community is really strong really full of culture and very vibrant. Um, And we often don't see the connections, the similarities between other people of color, other cultures and cross collaborating, I think is super important. Um, Seeing uh, what are the similarities in our oppression, um, the things we experienced as children um, are definitely unique. um, And I'm not saying that, but uh, how can we use this as a way to connect and Mm -hmm. speak 
for voices that are often oppressed um, in our communities today for people who may not, you know, get the benefit of the doubt in the classroom, um, who might be already seen due to implicit biases or unconscious biases as inferior. Um, I often think of the school space and thinking about how Asian Americans, um, just reflecting on how I was treated differently compared to my um, peers who were also people of color, but Hispanic and black. Um, why was I always, you know, the line leader or, you know, considered someone who was very um, disciplined, even though everyone else in my classroom was too. It's just that they, um, you know, it might've manifested differently. Their behavioral interpretations um, were different um, because of the color of their skin. And I also think as uh, practitioners in the space, there's a lot of activism and just even taking the role of, you know, being in charge of a support group, a dialogue space at your workplace, being part of a diversity, equity and inclusion council and using your power as an Asian American to not only show that um, Asian Americans go through a lot of depression, like um, oppression, but also um, to be a voice that is might be seen as more powerful than someone who is Hispanic or Black in the space, but a voice to be an ally for them. I think um, we do have this unique role as for being an ally um, for justice for all people. Um, and I think we just need to harness that more um, and take consideration of the disparities that exist within our communities as Asian. Um, mental health is on the rise. Mental health mm. illnesses are on the rise for people of Asian descent. Suicides for are also on the rise for uh, high schoolers and college kids specifically who are Asian American. And I don't think people will realize that that much because they seem to be so high achieving. Um, it's a, like when you look at them on a piece of paper, you see achievement, you see success, but what does that come down to, to their self-worth and how have mm. these model minority myths perpetuated that um, and created um, sort of a really poor um, health condition. Um, so I also think it does come down to health too. Um, so these are things I think that people um, who are either, you know, allies to Asian American issues or Asian American themselves and in the space of wanting to do more can do. And um, since you since you kind of teased it a little bit while it's top of mind for me, you talked about sort of like the working and the like overachieving. Also a cultural norm that doesn't come from nowhere, right? And so on a, on a future episode, we actually going to have Travis kind of talk through like sort of whiteness right mm -hmm. and the whole like working ourselves to death and the reason why that came up for me is because as we know especially in the context of race in this work it is proximity to right like uh, proximity rather to whiteness right mm -hmm. that influences how we experience you know, this world a race conscious world right a mm -hmm. system um, and I think that even influences this whole sort of model minority conversation, right? Proximity to whiteness, even as as people of color. I definitely, I definitely agree with you. I think the proximity to whiteness is one of the main reasons that we, um, as Asian Americans, have you know internalized this um, myth and perpetuated the stereotype of you know our, you know, achievement is our being instead of ourselves mm -hmm. as our being. I think 
Mm, um, that's really good. Yeah, I, I think we, like, mm. yeah, we tie it so much to our identity. Um, I think our t- identity sometimes, you know, becomes really minimized and to a point where, you know, what we can portray um, in proximity to whiteness is what we think is ourselves. And I think that's where a lot of the mental health concerns come in. A lot of the, you know, overworking, the fatigue uh, without even realizing it. This is all of this stuff is interconnected, y'all. All of it, all of it, all of it. So in your <laughs> post, folks love like action, right? And so in your post, you offered some, you know, pretty pointed feedback or practices rather to educators, mm-hmm. um, policy makers, and even community members. And so um, for the folks who are listening, can you just elaborate on those? Sure. So for educators, I think of, you know, are you pushing? Uh, students of color who aren't just Asian Americans to the same potential you're pushing Asian Americans. Um, Mm -hmm. Are you looking at the African American student as, you know, just as achieving, just as motivated? I think motivation is often seen um, as something that, you know, takes time and care. Are we looking at misbehaviors in the classrooms um, as are we treating them the same? I think that's really important as well. Um, And I think often it t- you have to take a step back and see, you know, there are even times I think of myself, I'm not an educator by any means, but even in the classroom when I was growing up, even in college, there were assumptions that I think I had made in my head about certain people. And um, when they proved me, proved to not be true, I was like, wow. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. I think, and then you think like, oh, wow, but also why am I so surprised? Why? <laughs> shouldn't I expect, you know, this African-American person to be more high achieving than I am, more motivated than I am, more passionate about something than I am. Um, And that was a big realization of how much I had internalized um, this myth. So I think educators can look into that, especially for um, at a young age. I think a lot of these things were learned to me at a very young age. So especially kindergarten teachers, grade school, Mm-hmm. Um, I really think um, educators should you know, take the time to, you know, listen carefully and make sure that um, you are bringing out the voices of other students as well. And also treating the Asian American student just like um, any student, how they want to be treated and not like some sort of, you know, prize pedestal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really important, too, for the mental health of the all students in the space. For policymakers, um, I think a lot about the disaggregation of data. I think Asian and Pacific Islander is just too broad to mm. encompass change for the various, very different communities in the Asian American space in America. Um, how can we better take into consideration disparities in the Asian American community is really important. We often see, you know, Asian Americans as high achieving, um, having, you know, more wealth, but by no means is it intergenerational at all. It's really um, the start of growing wealth, but also there are so many um, low income Asian Americans, a lot of refugees, especially from Vietnam, um, who Mm. often struggle being seen as who they are and struggle in the space because there's so many assumptions being made about them when in reality people are struggling um, and we're putting everyone in a box that they don't want to be in 
they want to be in a box that rep- like they don't want to be in a box they want to be represented as who they are and i think in terms of policies we need to recognize that and just aggregate different groups of um, asian americans um, and get good data on who is who makes up our community and the disparities especially with health especially with access to care income these are huge things that um, we tend to like generalize and I think for a true policy change that's specific to Asian Americans we need to disaggregate that and then lastly I think just being a community member being a person in your neighborhood um, something I always ask are what assumptions do we make about our Asian peers um, who are we seeing as high achieving or hard working in our communities mm-hmm. and why why do we see this person as more high achieving than this other person um, and who do we, you know, see as, oh, they worked hard versus, oh, um, they were, you know, a result of affirmative action, things like that. I think those are very um, often internalized things, especially as higher education becomes more competitive. People want that edge and people want to find a, I think, excuse. Um, people want to find an excuse to, uh, you know, justify their successes and failures. Um, and how are we perpetuating certain things with the Asian identity in that space? I think it's a really great way to start dialogue in your communities mm-hmm. as well as, um, you know, engage people in a conversation they've never had. I know most people who aren't South Asian or Asian American that I had um, grown up with didn't know what this was until I talked about it um, with my own struggles with, you know, anxiety, depression, being very... Um, internalized in the space and also that connection of identity who am I versus what am I on paper Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it was really eye-opening for people and it's something that's you know preventing our society from tackling root causes of injustice Um, so it's really a narrative that we have to unpack and reverse and I think the first way to do that is to start talking about it more this is this is really 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 good stuff and um i think about uh the organizations that we support who for example have employee resource groups right Mm -hmm. um employee resource groups that you know serve or that seek to amplify the experiences of um uh different communities of color be it black employees asian employees And when you talk about the role of dialogue, I think this conversations as this, conversations around internalized oppression and how Mm -hmm. the norms and messages that we have learned show up in the workplace are inexcellent, right? Just a a really good start point, or maybe not even a start point, but part of, because, you know, we got to start with like, you know, who we are. It's a really good opportunity, next opportunity to help folks or facilitate dialogue that get folks making the connection between, okay, this is who I am, this is where I've learned, and this is how it shows up in the workplace, right? A fairly, like, talk about another myth, merit, merit, you know, the, the whole, like, uh, meritocracy myth, which is heavy, huge, big in workplace environments. Hey, these are some of the messages that show that, you know what? No, it's not really a meritocracy, and our experiences are different, and outcomes are different, and here's why. An excellent opportunity to get folks talking across groups, um to affirm that even as we are uh part of this subordinated groups being people of color our experiences are different 
Exactly. Um, and we each play a unique role, right, in moving our work around equity and inclusion forward. Definitely. Because, I completely um, agree. I mean, so I'll just say, I just ask, um, just to wrap up our convo, why is, from your perspective, and I shared with this for some context, um, and maybe you already listened to it, but I'm right in the intro. I mm-hmm. shared why this intrapersonal work is so important, or at least my perspective on it. And so I just ask you, you know, why is this intrapersonal work, you know, so important to our effectiveness? And, and what do you offer to leaders, CEOs, change agents who are seeking to grow in their understanding of equity work themselves and themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think the first step is really recognizing your own privileges, experiences, um, ways you were brought up, the culture you were surrounded by, even your communities, and figuring out how does that make me who I am today. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's something I ask myself a lot because I grew up um, in a predominantly white community, Midwestern, suburban, um, and that has, and over time I've moved to different places, and that has really changed my, or really added to my worldview and, you know, tweaked it every time I go through a new experience. And I think for CEOs, for leaders um, in any space, the thing I think the first thing to do is to acknowledge where your beliefs, your values come from, your leadership styles and figure, dig one step deeper, you know, why am I this type of leader? And why am I more, you know, of a uh, direct communicator, indirect communicator? Um, and acknowledging the privileges that people have, I think, especially for Asian Americans, I think we have to acknowledge that the history of our country um, kind of put us on a pedestal while bringing other people down. And the while bringing mm. other people down is something we don't really talk about, even in the model minority myth space. Um, I think we have wow, to acknowledge other people down. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think we have to acknowledge that um, and also see what we can do now. Sure, we weren't, I wasn't alive during the civil rights movement, but that doesn't mean these issues don't exist today. Um, So I really think that CEOs and leaders can think more about the history, the history of their industries, the history of, Mm. you know, their, like their journey to where they were today um, and be very open about that. I think just even sharing their own experiences, um, whether it was, you know, a privilege or something they experienced that really, you know, was a challenge or obstacle for them is, I think, the first step to um, creating more inclusion in the workplace, um, encouraging other um, workers to be more um, comfortable on recognizing that their privileges are um, privileges. I don't think we they just are. Yeah, yeah they, they just, just are, are privileges. <laughs> um, and just acknowledging that and knowing that and being aware of how that changes actions, especially with people who don't have those privileges and what they can do to, um, you know, help people who may not have those privileges in a way. So I think that's really the first step the you know, acknowledging and acting upon. I think first the acknowledgement step is huge because um, we don't want to think about, I think we often always think about the, Um, things that are hardest for us, the things, our challenges or obstacles, but we don't think of what we already had and are taking for granted. Um, And I think that's one of the most 
important steps to creating a more inclusive workplace, inclusive communities, cultures, um, and just being a really good ally and advocate for uh, justice. This has been um, such a wonderful conversation. I shared with the folks, um, our listeners, Summer, that we have a reflection guide to support mm-hmm. folks in reading, listening, and then just like unpacking this stuff for themselves. And so I would just offer our listeners to, you know, reflect on some of what we discussed in this episode, what resonated with you most, perhaps what didn't, um, and what ways have you observed or perhaps experienced and or perpetuated this model minority myth um, in your world. And really think about based on the groups, the identity groups that you're part of, what are some of the messages that you've internalized about your identity, your groups that perhaps seem positive, but could have a negative impact on our broader quest for equity, justice, and inclusion. I appreciated the call out of, sure, this stereotype, this myth lifted this community up, but hey, and it also, um, you know, brought or was in service of, you know, oppressing, bringing another group down. That's so important to acknowledge. Mm-hmm and and call out in a lot you said it a lot of this work this interpersonal work the first part is just kind of just knowing and the more we know and understand and are aware of ourselves the more we can begin to enact right all of this in our uh, behaviors in our systems and our policies in our spheres of influence any other thoughts final thoughts Tama, you want to share with the folks who are listening before we wrap up? Well, I would just like to say thank you, Brittany, um, and everyone listening. I think um, just even listening to this podcast and learning about these topics of internalized oppression are so important and it's a step towards greater Mm self-understanding. And I encourage everyone, no matter what your identity is, um, to um, explore this topic more in your spaces, whether it's, you know, asking your... um, peer who identifies as Asian American, what they think about it, um, and just encouraging dialogue and talk about this will, I think, is the first step to change of, you know, breaking this narrative apart um, and dismantling this cycle. Mm-hmm. Load inclusive yeah. conversations, y'all. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, definitely, 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 you all perhaps already know, because I've said it before, the Winters group is everywhere you can think of on social media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, YouTube, the Winters group. Uh, the Reflection Guide, if you have not downloaded it already, is on our website, wintersgroup.com. Download it and engage in this conversation and some reflection on your own. We use this John Dewey quote, right? We don't just learn from our experiences. We learn by reflecting on them. And so you can even use the guide as a way, as Summer shared, to get conversations started with your peers, right? Print it out, distribute it. Um, listen in and and use some of what we have shared on Inclusion Solution Live to engage in some dialogue yourselves. We even have a few resources on the site for um, engaging in bold, inclusive conversations, norm setting, all that good stuff. As y'all well know, we we end our learning experiences and commitment to live inclusively and so I'm going to share that and then we 
are going to sign off. Um, I commit to be intentional and living inclusively, to spending more time getting to know myself and understanding my culture. It is in understanding myself that I am better positioned to understand others. I will acknowledge that I don't know what I don't know, but I will not use what is unconscious as an excuse. I will be intentional in exposing myself to difference. If I don't know, I will ask. If I am asked, I will assume positive intent. Most importantly, I will accept my responsibility in increasing my own knowledge and understanding. I commit to speaking up and speaking out, even when I am not directly impacted, for there is no such thing as neutrality in the quest for equity, justice, and inclusion. I will strive to accept and not just tolerate, respect, even if I don't agree and be curious, not judgmental. I commit to pausing and listening. I will be empathetic to the experiences and perspectives of my others. I will use my privilege positively and get comfortable with my own discomfort. I commit to knowing, getting, and doing better than I did yesterday, keeping in mind my commitment to live inclusively is a journey, not a destination. Until next time, folks, um, we will talk to you soon. Thanks again, Tamara. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, hope you all will listen in for our next episode. Bye-bye.